Would you stand with me in reverence for the reading of the Holy Scriptures from 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you have been doing to all the, bro to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more and to aspire to live <clears throat> and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord, amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Jessica. All right, well, we've, we've been in a series now for a couple of months called God of Every Good Thing. We are trying to uh, explore what, what is a major but sometimes easily missable theme of the Christian Bible, Old and New Testament, that the God of the, what the scriptures claim is that the God of the Bible is the one true genuine source of every good thing we encounter in this world. And we're trying to fight at these ideas that there's some sort of like neutral or uh, generic source of, of the good things and the joys and the pleasures of life uh, that's disconnected from him. We're trying to bring all of life and all of the joy that we experience into its rightful place, uh, which is underneath the loving grace and provision of our God. And um, last week, Ian, uh, if he ever, his, ends up hearing this, thank you, Ian. I'll tell him that personally as well. Ian Cornell from Dwarf Hope Southeast stepped in and he talked about the gift of rest and how that Ultimately, like ultimate, true, genuine rest comes through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, but that every instance of, of genuine rest that we find in this life is a pointer towards him and a pointer toward that final rest that we're going to get one day when he comes and puts all things right. Rest, though, you can't talk about rest without looping in a parallel concept that seems maybe contradictory, but they go hand in hand, which is the idea of work. And I know you might be thinking, like, okay, God of every good thing, what in the world does work have to do with this? Because for a lot of us, we think about work, we just think about toil and frustration and, like, just kind of, you know, gritting our teeth and waiting for it to be over so that we can get on to the things that we really want to be doing. Hopefully, we can dispel that idea as we move forward. Um, it, it, in the foreword to this book called The Gospel at Work, um, Pastor David Platt, he, he didn't write the book, he wrote the foreword. He says this. I thought this, this just kind of put a fine point on it. He says, if the people I pastor work 40 hours a week for 40 years of their lives, and I'll go ahead and say I know plenty of people work more than 40 hours a week, but if we just start, start there, 40 hours a week for 40 years of the, their lives, that means they will put in more than 80,000 hours at a job during their lifetime. And these hours don't even include the thousands that they spend in cars, planes, and trains traveling for work. Consequently, one of our greatest needs in the church is an understanding of how daily work, according to God's word, ties in with God's ultimate purpose in the world. I think he's dead right about that. It is very possible for all of us to have such a view of our work, and I just defined it outright. I, I mean, anything that we do, anything that we do that basically is cultivating, you know, the world around us and the relationships around us. Um, so 
more specifically, I could be talking about a business job or whatever, something outside the home, or it very much applies to things inside the home, raising children, homeschooling, whatever. Whatever your work is, the, things, the labor of your life, the, the, the work that you have to put yourself to um, applies to this whole conversation. So the vast majority of people on this planet work in some form or fashion, whether in the marketplace, in agriculture, the arts, in the home, in education, in government, in service, in hospitality, in healthcare, nonprofit spaces, or whatever. And, and if the time and energy that we spend at work matters to God, glorifies God, and contains gifts from God, then we had better develop the eyes to see them. Or else most of us are going to live something we've talked about numerous, numerous times in the series, painfully bifurcated lives where we've sort of got God's time over here and God's space over here and then just this other stuff that I just kind of do and that's sort of a distraction from the deep and important and spiritually significant things of my life. We just want to break down that dividing wall. Work is one of those areas that I think it's hard for us to do that. It's hard for us to break that down. So we need to talk about it. We need to ask God to help us. So let's start there with prayer. Father, um, I know in this room there are probably some people whose jobs are just, just so synced up with, with their passions and their skills and their gifts and um, their sense of just calling and, 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 and purpose in this world. And for that, Lord, we, we, we thank you and we glorify you. And there's some of those people who may be hearing these and go, yes, and amen, let's hear more of that. But Lord, I also know that there are plenty of people in this room for whom their work is just full of frustration and disappointment, and this isn't what I thought I would be doing, but I have to do it to put food on the table or whatever else. And for those people too, Lord, we say thank you for their faithfulness and their diligence, and we pray that whatever boat each of us finds ourselves in, Lord, that we could just zoom out and find a bigger picture and find, find a greater image of your grace and your provision in whatever our work is. Um, it's complicated, as all of these things are. It's complicated. Work is complicated in this life, Lord, but we just pray for uh, your eyes to see the gifts and the goodnesses that are there where we can. So we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're just going to talk through this through a few angles. I think I have a slide um, that will just kind of lay the, lay the groundwork for us. The first is this. I want to talk about the goodness of work. Work is good. Work is good. Before uh, anything else, before any sin had entered the world, we see numerous instances of work. The first is that God was at work. Genesis 2, 1 through 3, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them and on the seventh day God finished his, guess what the word is? his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. We have a God who works. God in his perfection, God in his beauty, God in his goodness, God in his sinlessness, God in his sovereignty, he chooses to work. Creation itself is an act of his work. But it's not just him. It's not just him, and I know some of this is redundant. We keep hitting these passages again and again and again, but let's do it one more time. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 2.15 gives, gives a, uh, a more concise statement of things. God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So here's my point. Work, God's work and then human work was part of paradise. Did you know that? Did you realize that? The work of Adam and Eve was simple. was simple. It's gardening. It's naming the animals. It's, uh, you know, imagine it would have gotten more complex as time went on, but it's simple. But we can expect that as humanity continued to multiply, had the fall not happened, there would continue to be a division of labor as there's more people, exponentially more types of skill and work developed towards the end of what's the task? lovingly cultivating the whole world to the glory of God and to the good of human neighbor and the rest of creation. Work is not a curse. Work itself is not a curse. Work itself is not a result of the fall. It is not definitionally a slog or a punishment or a necessary evil. It is baked into the design of humanity. There was a a time in which humans worked without any toil, without any lack of joy, without any frustration. That it was actually part of the goodness of what it meant to be God's image bearer in this world. Did you realize that? But it's not just that, that work is, was, was part of paradise, part of the world before the fall. Because you can take that and go, okay, yeah, sure, there's certain, certain types of work in which this is applicable. But the Bible leaves, leaves enough breadcrumbs to develop this theology that this, this dignity and this goodness doesn't just apply to work in abstract, but to all work. It's not just particular types of work, but all work, and I'll say this as a caveat in our fallen world, provided that this, this work is aimed at the you know, at the good cultivation of the world and genuine human flourishing because there are plenty of jobs, we'll talk about some of them, that are aimed at human destruction and, and unhealth and anti-flourishing, of course. But provided that it's at least aimed in that direction of the good, any type of work, no matter how mundane, is good. You know, many cultures throughout human history, including pockets of our own here today, have denigrated physical labor, you know, the real, the real work is the sort of intellectual or whatever, um, philosophical, business-oriented, you know, capital-producing, but not God. Not God. He himself is presented in Genesis 1 and 2 as a type of gardener. He himself is presented as a type of gardener, and the work of the land is the first task that he gave to Adam and Eve. So getting your hands dirty with the simple, simple manual labor is, is sanctified by God in the first pages of the Bible, and that's pretty radically different from how almost every other religion and culture has viewed such things. Um, but the logic of Genesis 1 and 2 is that all types of work carry this dignity and value, even, even beyond gardening. So in his great book, if, if you've thought much about this subject at all, you've probably come across this book, uh, Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller, which if I could just say... Man, what a loss. Tim Keller died probably a month ago or so. He was by far the most influential sort of pastor, you know, you know that I didn't know. 
uh, in my life, consumed most of his books, listened to his sermons all the time. Um, that felt like losing a friend in an odd way to me. Um, I, think, I think American Christianity has, has huge shoes to fill there, and I've, I've been grieving that one. I assume many of you have been too. Um, but we have his books. We have his books, his excellent books. He had one on work called Every Good Endeavor. And he wrote about the God-given task of human cultivation. We've been talking about this a ton lately. This is the rearranging of the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. And so here's what he goes on to say talking about this. He says, this pattern of cultivation is found in all kinds of work. Farming takes the physical material of soil and seed and produces food. Music takes the physics of sound and rearranges it into something beautiful and thrilling that brings meaning to life. When we take fabric and make a piece of clothing, when we push a broom and clean up a room, when we use technology to harness the forces of electricity, when we take an unformed, naive human mind and teach it a subject, when we teach a couple how to resolve their relational disputes, when we take simple materials and turn them into a poignant work of art, we are continuing God's work of forming, filling, and subduing. Whenever we bring order out of chaos, whenever we draw out creative potential, whenever we elaborate and unfold creation beyond where it was when we found it, we are following God's pattern of creative cultural development. In fact, our world culture comes from this idea of cultivation. Just as he subdued the earth in his work of creation, so he calls us now to labor as his representatives in a continuation an extension of that work of subduing. So just to get really practical here, so Keller's just trying to get us to see this, this cultivating aspect of, of virtually every job we could imagine, if we have the eyes to see it. But I want to take, for example, one thing that's maybe not mentioned in Genesis, but quite obviously flows out of it. I mean, I, I think for me, one of the most natural jobs to connect to this idea of cultivation and, you know, aimed at human flourishing is healthcare. And I know many of you in this room work in healthcare. But let's just take, I have a particular friend that's an emergency room surgeon, okay? And his work involves regularly performing emergency surgeries that save the lives of God's image bearers. You know, he's using the skill set in his job to literally help the lives of the people that God cares about to flourish. So, I think most of us go, okay, yeah, that seems like one of those jobs that is just like directly aimed at human flourishing and cultivation towards a very, you know, unmistakably good end. Like, it would not be hard for him to find deep significance uh, in connection to God in his work, I would assume. But listen to this. It's not just him involved in this work. For whatever happens on the surgeon's table, you have to have this whole crazy network of other kinds of works to, to build it and to sustain it. Just to give a sliver, I mean, this is so, so minuscule of, you know, just, just a sliver of this, but there are entire industries involved in creating the tables that these operations take place on. The tools they use to perform the surgeries, the chemicals used to sterilize the equipment, the building that houses the operation, the utilities that provide electricity and water and cool air and on and on and on. Each of these, you know, behind it has researchers and engineers and raw material farmers and designers and manufacturers and logistics managers, all the way to the truck drivers that bring them there and on and on and on. The surgeon's table is also dependent upon educational institutions. 
that teach and train surgeons to do this work without killing someone. There are also the countless support staff and administrators that make those institutions run. And I'm running out of steam here, but I, I trust that you get my point. I trust that you get my point. It would be very easy, I imagine, it is very easy, for any of the people in those outer rings of involvement to view their job as unimportant, meaningless, or whatever. But thank God for them. Literally, thank God for those people doing those things. It's the, exact, it's, it's the exact logic that Paul talks about with the diversity of spiritual gifts in the church. We all think, you know, being the, I don't know, maybe think being the teacher or the worship leader or whatever, that's where the glory is. That's where the magic is. That's the spiritual stuff. And Paul's like, we just don't value things the way the world does. He's like, no, 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 no. You know, the head doesn't get to say to the foot, you're unimportant, nor does the foot get to say to the head, but it's all of it working together that makes a functioning body. And we like to say, well, that's the one that really matters. That's the one that doesn't. And God's just like, no, all of it, every person working their perfect little piece of this puzzle is how flourishing happens. So no one gets to view themselves as lesser. No one gets to view themselves as greater. It's beautiful in that regard. Same logic, same logic for everything. My point here is that every bit of human work, if it's aimed the right direction, is its own small, in its own small way, a part of the human project of honoring God in our cultivation of the world he's given us for his glory and for neighbor's good. No one person gets to do everything. Sometimes we have that, like, I don't know, maybe like the CEO of the huge company, they're the one who like really does everything, but it's like, we all know, like, no. They could be a good CEO or whatever, but like, there's thousands and thousands of people that have to do their thing just right for this thing to work. Everyone is dependent on everyone else. That's the way God has designed it. Rather, we all, all of us, no matter our role, we only get to do a couple of small things. Even the most celebrated and highly regarded people that are viewed as the most important, they don't get to do that much stuff. They're just doing a small sliver of things. So it is with all of us. So consider what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4 that Jessica read for us. He says, I'll just read the back half of it. He says, he's talking about brotherly love, love one another. We urge you, brothers, to do this and more. And listen to this. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul is explicitly giving dignity to just the quiet, faithful work, even manual work with your hands that just is, a, you know, just like what we might consider a minor blessing to the community around you. You're just playing your part. You're doing your little work of cultivation that fits into this larger thing, sure. You might not think much of it. But Paul says that, that is worth enshrining in the, script, in the New Testament. There's only so many words in the New Testament. He, multiple places he gives this sentiment, like do your work, do it well. It's significant. God cares about this. There is nothing, there is nothing subpar or missing the mark about living a quiet, mundane life of simple work done with integrity to the glory of God and for the good of your neighbor. Amen? I love this quote from, there's this great book. It's not, it's not so much about work. It's kind of about a, a broader picture of vocation by this guy named Steve Garber. It's called Visions of Vocation. He says, most of us cannot live extraordinary lives. Instead, we live in families and in neighborhoods, working and worshiping week by week in rhythms that make the sum of our lives, season after season, year after year, 
Life cannot be other than that. This is no failure on your part or on mine. God's scale of dignity is not the same as our celebrity culture or social media or anything else. If you're ever made to feel insignificant by the small things of your life, it's not from God. God uniquely dignifies the quiet, lowly, hidden lives of faithfulness, even in our own work. Just think about, we've talked about this before, but Jesus the carpenter. Jesus, Jewish man, apprentice, evidently, apprentice under his dad, a Jewish carpenter, became a carpenter himself, probably in his early teenage years, and probably for a decade plus before he began his, his public ministry around the age of 30, just lived as a faithful, hardworking, we assume, Jewish carpenter, making stuff out of wood, loving his neighbors, being a part of his community, being a son, being a brother being a friend, he dedicated the majority of his life to that. That's Jesus, the perfect Son of God. Who are we to look at someone like that, anyone like that, our neighbors, and go, ah, that doesn't really matter. It's not what faithfulness looks like. Don't do it. Don't do it. Jesus, the carpenter, casts a wildly different perspective on this than I suspect most of us are used to hearing. So that's the goodness of work. That's the goodness of work. But I want to talk about the satisfaction and limits of work as well. Think of Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. He gives the commandment to Sabbath. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The logic here is that God's example of what he did in creation, six days of creation, a seventh day of rest, and then here a command from God to the people, it's a powerful reminder that work will never be ultimate. It will never be ultimate. Work is not all there is to life. Part of the logic of this command to Sabbath is that you just have to stop and trust God. It doesn't matter if you work the seventh day. You're not ultimately going to provide for yourself in the deepest way. Trust God's provision. Yes, work, work is valuable. We just spent 10 minutes talking about it, but it's not ultimate. It's not ultimate. Our own work will never be the final source of our own provision. We have to learn to trust God as the final provider. Work must be sat down. Some of us in this room, I think, really need to hear this. Work must be sat down. This was baked into the fabric of our planet, even, with the cycle of day and night. Think about, life was very different before the invention of electricity and the Industrial Revolution, where now we can work 24-7, especially those of us that have just, like, computer jobs. It's just like, you can work all the time. But the way God designed the world was that the sun goes down, you can't do the types of labor that people would do. It's like, oh, I, I have to stop now. <laughs> I have to rest. That's how most people functioned. We're kind of in this like deeply unsettled time, I think, in human history. We have been for a couple hundred years. Um, limitations around work remind us that it's not ultimate. But here, here's where I'm going with this, getting into the goodness of this. Limitations around work also allow its the satisfactions of work to be felt. 
there is a pleasure. I trust that all of us have felt this at one time or another. There is a pleasure to the rest within the kinds of tiredness that follows, say, a day of manual labor. There is a pleasure to the rest that follows the intellectual strain of a hard day of writing or problem solving. There's a pleasure to the rest that follows an artistic checkpoint. Say you're working on a painting and you get to a stopping place that's satisfying. When you can actually step back from whatever your work is, maybe it's just getting the kids to bed. That's one for me right now. You get the kids to bed, you step back. It's, it's like, this is so hard, this is so hard, this is so hard, they're asleep. Ah, this is good. <laughs> like, I, I actually do like parenting. This is actually very satisfying to see my little one sleeping here. And not just the sleeping. Like, you're a, you get the space and you're able to go, oh, yes, this is beautiful, like, what we're doing here. I believe it's that way with everything. I'd go so far as to say that, that every kind of work has a pleasure to give when it's worked with integrity, with perspective, and with limitations. Our temptation... And our technology often enables us to never stop working, to never rest, to never disconnect, to never actually get to take a step back and see, like, what am I even doing? What am I building towards here? What, what is actually the result of this energy that I'm putting in? And the result of this never stopping is physical unhealth, mental unhealth, familial unhealth, and on and on and on and on. Rest, I would say, I think the Bible is saying, completes and illuminates the pleasures and joys of work that are there. Not that everything about work is pleasurable and joyful, of course, but whatever is there, rest enables it. Limitation enables us to see it. So that's what I mean by the satisfaction and the limits of work. There's a third point. Third point, the challenges of work. As with all these themes, there's a twist in the story. God gives work, it's good, but there is a fall. There is a fall. Adam and Eve, they, they disobey God. They reject his righteous rule. They decide to take matters into their own hands to determine good and evil for themselves. They eat of the fruit, the one fruit that God commanded them not to eat of. And there are consequences for work. More than just work, but for at least work. Verse 17, chapter 3 of Genesis. He's, and to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, <clears throat> you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Remember, the ground is what they were working. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The Bible claims that work was a good and joyous part before the fall. Work but work was tarnished. Like the picture here is that complication and challenge and difficulty has entered into human work. That doesn't mean work isn't still valuable, necessary, important, or that there aren't pleasures still to be derived from it, but it's hard now. There's probably not a person in here who has not faced some extreme, extreme difficulty in your work, discouragement in your work, frustration, exhaustion, lack of passion, um, setbacks, on and on and on. So these problems express themselves in numerous ways. One, work becomes difficult. It's the most obvious layer there in Genesis 3. Work becomes difficult. Things that should just kind of work just don't work. Things break down. 
goes for the physical, but also goes for the intellectual. It goes for the relationships when you're working in community and in teams and in organizations. Things are just at loggerheads. Things just rub up against one another. There is friction. There is difficulty. You, you make some, you know, two steps, two steps back, four, what, what am I trying to say? What's the expression? <laughs> two steps, one step forward, two steps back, two, four, one, two. You know what I'm saying. We'll leave it there. You make some progress and then you regress. Work becomes difficult. Work becomes difficult. It's just the way it is. We've all experienced it. More than that, work becomes complicated. And what I, what I mean is, now that human sin is in the picture, it's not so easy for any of us to draw a straight line between like the goodness of human flourishing and my work. We're like, okay, I work for the, maybe I work for this giant organization and what I do, I don't feel morally compromised about it, but as the organization begins to drift, like, oh, is this thing that I'm helping support like going in a direction that's actually to the betterment of humanity? Are we actually cultivating our space towards something valuable, towards something good. So I don't know a single person who isn't like, am I just fully at peace with what I'm being asked to do in my job? It's complicated and it requires discernment. It may require saying no to some jobs. It may require like trying to use, you know, your leverage at your job towards a healthier direction or whatever. There's not always easy answers for that, but it's, it's complicated. And then finally, or not finally, the third thing you take that down to its furthest stream, work becomes compromised. So, so complex work is almost always mixture in this fallen world, but occasionally you, find, you might find yourself, again, in a place where you're like, the job I thought I was doing and I was passionate about, it's suddenly become morally, ethically, whatever, compromised. It takes wisdom to know when to step away. And I hopefully, community like this would be one where you would, you know, be able to process these things and prayerfully consider, like, at what point am I, am I losing my ability to be a positive influence here, and now I'm just complicit in something that's wreaking havoc in the world? Not to say there aren't just jobs that are just obviously no Christian should ever do. I'll just hold up pornography industry. If you're in that industry, I don't know any of you that are, you should not be in that industry. <laughs> you should quit. You should quit if you're a Christian. You shouldn't try to nudge it towards a more ethical place, I don't believe. You should, you should get out and help anyone else get out that's mired in it. There are things like that as well. Um, finally, work becomes idolatrous. As we said, work can become this place where we're tempted. We're tempted to derive all of our meaning, all of our significance, all of our joy, all of our happiness, all of our security from it and it takes an outsized place in our lives. There's just four ways that work has been affected by the fall. So we have to acknowledge those. We're not in Genesis 1 and 2 anymore. We're in a post-Genesis 3 world. Things aren't just all peachy and cheery and simple. It's just more complicated than that. So that reality acknowledged. Work is good, and work is complicated. Bring us to a final point that there is meaning to our work. There's meaning to our work, and we find, we find this meaning numerous places. One is just what we've mentioned already. Genesis 1, 26 to 28, the first task given to humanity, theologians call it the cultural mandate, to go, fill the earth, multiply, subdue it, keep it, work it, take this wonderful place and take it somewhere even better. Unleash its potential, cultivate it. So our work, even in the most insignificant little realms, to us, seemingly insignificant, 
Work is a means by which we to this day here in 2023 in Portland, Oregon, we fulfill our little piece of that work, of that task given to humanity. So view your work, whether it's in the home or in business or in counseling or whatever it is, view it that way. This is how I get to play a role in imaging God and stewarding this small corner of the world towards an even better place than it was before. And celebrate that. Second, you can view work, your work as a means of fulfilling the great commandment. And that's tied to this. But, you know, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, well, here you go. It's love the Lord your God with everything you have. Everything, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God. He doesn't stop there. He says there's a second like it. And love your neighbor as yourself. Everything about the law and the prophets summed up in this. It all depends on this. So work is a means of fulfilling that great commandment. Through our work, through these even small acts of cultivation, even if we can't see the connection, we are playing a role in cultivating for the good and the betterment of the people around us. We can honor and love God through our work. We can honor and love and serve our neighbors through our work. Third, I would say another huge, huge kind of stamp on Christians is we've got the, the cultural mandate, we've got the great commandment, and then there's a great commission. Jesus gave the disciples, before he, before he ascended, he said, listen, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'll be with you. I will be with you. Oh, and teach them to obey all that I've commanded as well. So, work becomes an avenue towards fulfilling the Great Commission in a no- number of ways. One, and, and of course, I, this isn't the sum total of what it means to work with, you know, dignity in your Christian work, but it is an avenue for proclaiming the gospel. And I'm not saying that you go and you destroy your professional credibility by just talking about Jesus all the time at the workplace. I think that's obviously not what I mean. But I do mean there are relationships that form. I mean, if you're personable, if you're, if you're willing to cultivate those relationships, you, you have opportunity for depth and relationship to get involved in people's lives, to begin to ask questions. What do you believe? What gives you meaning in life? Where's your joy? That lead into gospel proclamation. They're, they're the, it's the most like active sort of, to use Jason's language, mission field that any of us have as our coworkers. That's actually one of the things I hate about being a pastor. <laughs> there aren't many. There aren't many things I hate about being a pastor, but I do hate the way in which it often isolates me from people outside the church. It's difficult. It's difficult to find, like, area of deep connection with people who don't know the Lord, who need to know the Lord. So your work becomes this, this field in which you can cultivate these relationships, and through your faithful, sort of integrous work, build up the kind of credibility that will enable you one day to speak the gospel and truth and love to people who need to hear it. But it also becomes this means through which you can financially support direct Great Commission sort of advancement. So there's this amazing thing. We work for these companies that pay us money to do this thing. And you know what? They're like, they are giving us money that we can then put directly to gospel causes, either through giving to your church or giving to a local organization that's serving and caring for the vulnerable or through missions organizations or whatever. Like, don't view this as disconnected. These are resources that God in his generosity through your work is giving you that you might be able to turn around and take the resources of like Amazon and say, great gospel. Thank you, Jeff Bezos, <laughs> to the kingdom of God. That's amazing. That's amazing. But more than any of that, 
Finally, rather, work is a signpost and a foretaste of the life and work that is to come. What I mean by that is that the work we do now is a gesture of hope in God's promises. His promises to perfect and to redeem and to resurrect and to recreate the world. We are not the ones who believe everything is just going to burn up one day. You know that, right? Sadly, Christians are characterized that way. Sometimes Christians believe that. That, oh, it doesn't, all this stuff down here on earth doesn't matter. That is not how God views things. It is the materialist who is waiting on the heat death of the universe who believes everything's going to burn up one day. And if that is true, what is the point of any of this? What's the point of laboring to serve my neighbor? What's the point of trying to honor a God who doesn't exist? What's the point of doing anything other than trying to enact my desires for power and pleasure? But that's not us. That's not us. We are the ones who hope in things unseen. Hope because, well, let me just say it this way. Because Jesus died and rose and is coming back, our work, our small pieces of cultivation, even when they're met with frustration and pragmatism and deferred desires, even when we have jobs that we don't like because you, I just need a job, I just have to provide for myself or for my family or whatever, even when it's not scratching that sort of, oh, this is just perfect for like my desires and my temperament and my skills or whatever, even in those cases, even when it's hard, even when you're frustrated in it, whatever, even in those situations, because Jesus died, rose, and is coming back, our small pieces of cultivation are little acts of resistance against the nihilism and cynicism and hopelessness that surrounds us. When we work faithfully and with integrity, it's a way of saying, this isn't for nothing. This will be rewarded, this will be strengthened, this will be made true, these things I'm working toward. Tim Keller again, talking about uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's wonderful little story, Leaf by Niggle. If you don't know that story, it's about, it's about a guy who's a painter. He's trying to paint this incredibly complex pic, you know, image of this forest, and he's devoting his life to it, but then like, the, like the, the demands of life start encroaching in. He has like a neighbor that's sick that he has to take care of, and slowly his painting begins to degrade, and he has to like, I think at one point he has to use it to like patch his roof or something. And at the end of the story, all that's left of this masterpiece he was trying to devote his, life, his life's work to is just this one little leaf, this one little leaf. And he's frustrated, he's heartbroken, he's so, he's so angry. But at the end of the story, at the end of the story, what ends up happening is he gets moved into this country where he actually sees the exact, you know, vista that he had been painting from the exact little leaf that was remaining, but the whole thing in glorious detail, but now he can actually touch it and smell it and eat of the trees, and, and it's this glorious little thing. And his, his point is this, the, this, the story, the meaning of it is this, Keller points it out, I'll quote Keller here. He says, whatever your work, you need to know this, there really is a tree. Whatever you're seeking in your work, the city of justice and peace, the world of brilliance and beauty and the story, the order, the healing, it is there. There is a God, there is a future healed world that he will bring about. And your work is showing it in part to others. Your work will only be partially successful on your best days in bringing that world about. But inevitably, 
that the real tree that you seek, the beauty, the harmony, the justice, the comfort, the joy, the community, it will come to fruition. If you know all this, you won't be despondent because you only, you know, get a leaf or two out of this life. You will work with satisfaction and joy. And at the same time, you will not be puffed up by success, nor will you be devastated by setbacks. There really is a tree. The things that we're building toward do not end when we die, when the universe crumbles upon itself. Every good thing that we are working toward in this life, it will find its place and its reality and its fulfillment in the life to come, in the new heavens and the new earth. So again, every act are small pieces of cultivation, even met with frustration or pragmatism or deferred desires. They are acts of resistance against nihilism, cynicism, and hopelessness. They are gestures of hope and trust in our God. Amen? So work is meaningful, friends. There are joys and pleasures. There are significances to be found even in the smallest thing. If it's aimed the right way, if it's done with integrity and faithfulness, if it's done with a with thanksgiving and in connection to God. It's meaningful. It's good. It's frustrating, but it's full of significance, not just earthly significance, but eternal significance. So to conclude, I want to conclude with a prayer that was written by Steve Garber in that book, Visions of Vocation. I think this is beautiful. I'm going to read, read his prayer. Bow your heads with me. It says, God of heaven and earth, we pray for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Teach us to see our vocations and occupations as woven into your work in the world this week. For mothers at home who care for children, for those whose labor forms our common life in the city, the nation, and the world, for those who serve the marketplace of ideas and commerce, for those whose creative gifts nourish us all, for those whose callings take them into the academy, for those who long for employment that satisfies their souls and serves you. For each one we pray, asking for your great mercy. Give us eyes to see that our work is holy to you, O Lord, even as our worship this day is holy to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And to that prayer, I would just add this. Thank you, Father, for the privilege it is to work alongside you that you dignify our work, however seemingly small, with deep and eternal significance. Thank you for your gifts that come through our work, through our rest, and through the work of the neighbors around us. Amen.